This episode of New Politics was released on the 25th of November, 2023, and produced on the lands of the Wangal and Wajuk people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, another week of China bashing just when everything seemed to be going so well. The debate about stage three tax cuts is back again. And the coalition is ahead in the polls again, but that doesn't mean that we need to get ready for Prime Minister Peter Dutton. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, new CEO of Optus. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription, but whether it's a subscription or whether you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a t-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. There was an incident concerning the HMAS Toowoomba in the East China Sea last week and while it's not entirely clear what happened, enough details have been released to ramp up the anti-China rhetoric and once again give the leadership of the Liberal Party an opportunity to talk about national security and claim that the federal government is not doing enough to stand up to China. But we've had enough of standing up to China. The Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and the Foreign Minister Penny Wong have spent the past 18 months trying to successfully repair the relationship with China and lift almost all the trade sanctions that were imposed upon Australian exporters after the former Prime Minister Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton made those accusations about China causing the COVID virus and wanting the World Health Organisation to investigate. And all of this seems to be politics as usual. The Labor Party has got a good relationship with the Chinese government and the Liberal Party is suspicious of the Chinese government and it sees an opportunity to cause problems for the Labor government and it looks like that's what it will keep doing for some time to come. It's almost as if they don't have any progressive thinking. They want to revert Australia back to the 1960s or even the 50s where you could say things about the Chinese government, some of which were true, some of which were untrue. And it's almost as if they want to return to Mao Zedong being president of China because at least as a communist, you knew where he stand, unlike these free marketeer Chinese people who are like us, but they're not like us, so they must be communists still. It's really strange. And why you would try and undermine the diplomacy that has happened, of course, it's in their interest to be seen to be standing up to a superpower. They can't stand up to America, who needs to be stood up to. And by, you know, I'm not saying let's get the troops together and send an invasion force through to San Diego or somewhere or Florida. But certainly with cases that we have mentioned time and time again, the Assange case, the the whole idea of what's going on in Pine Gap, the whole idea of AUKUS, you know, we can stand up to the United States and, and, and question these as friends, as strong allies rather than as weak allies. Seems the coalition wants to do that with China and in fact not even be friends, despite the massive material cost that would come with. Ask any exporter who has just had uh, sanctions lifted what they think of the Chinese relationship and how badly Australia should treat China. And of course, what was the Australian ship doing so far down in the East China Sea, so close to the China border? That hasn't really come out. Probably it was there legally and validly, but there's a chance it may not have been. So I'd be very careful in um, 
what I was highlighting to the public and to other governments, including the Chinese government. And whenever these incidents occur, the details end up being very sketchy. It's not entirely clear where the incident occurs. And we're just led to believe that whatever happens, it must be something quite terrible because it does involve China. And there's just enough details that are released to sway domestic opinion and keep China as the big threat that we all need to be afraid of. And the way that this incident was reported, the HMAS Toowoomba just happened to be somewhere, just minding its own business, and it was reported as being off the coast of Japan or just off the waters of Japan, and when it was actually right on the edge of China, in the East China Sea, and it was actually part of a UN process to monitor the trade embargo against North Korea. That's why it was actually in the area, but the territory that it was in was very, very close to Chinese territory and not so close to North Korea, and as you are David, what was it actually doing there? Why, why was it so close to the Chinese border? And the Chinese ship is also reported as being a warship, whereas Australia's ship is reported as an Anzac-class frigate. And that doesn't sound as threatening. And in case you're wondering, they're actually almost identical ships, and both are classified as warships. Now, I'm not saying that China was in the right or the wrong or that Australia was, but we frequently see this with the reporting of these sorts of events. We saw it with the incident in early 2022 when a Chinese vessel shone a military laser at an Australian vessel in the Arafura Sea towards Australia's north. And again, the details with that incident were sketchy and vague, and then the issue blew over. And of course, there's a reason why the details are a bit sketchy and vague, and that all relates to national security issues for both countries. But we are always made to believe that the the big aggressive regime of China is bullying poor little naive and innocent Australia, which has now got the full backing of orcas behind it, when the reality is just a lot more complicated. Navy ships will send each other messages in, I'll call it a sense of play. The military laser was really saying, yep, we see you here, you're probably not supposed to be here, and look what would happen if things were to escalate. You're not as smart as you think you are, type thing. I'm sure Australian ships have done that to other nations too. What are you doing in Australian waters? Here's just a thing to show you that we know you're here. We might know what you're doing, but we know that you now know that we can get you quite easily. The point is, is that our media, and hello to those people who say we complain too much about media, our media and our opposition would rather have China as an aggressive foe rather than an ally who we may have friction with with time to time, uh, whose interests may clash with ours from time to time. But both countries have good diplomatic services that help smooth those things over. That's a bit too complex and a bit too dull for a media built on sensationalism. So every little thing gets blown up into a proportion that is way outsized of its actual importance. And the Prime Minister was also verbaled by the coalition and the media. And it's like we've got a government in exile where every political event is framed from a coalition perspective and they're always the go-to people to discuss these types of matters. And the Deputy Liberal Party leader, Susan Lay, she made big noises about Anthony Albanese using the trip to China for photo opportunities and not discussing this issue with Xi Jinping. And in response, Albanese said that any concerns would go through the normal diplomatic channels, which is the correct process yeah. to go through, rather than megaphoning it through the media, which is what Scott Morrison used to do, and didn't that work out well for Australia? And, of course, 
the news headlines ended up becoming Prime Minister refuses to say he raised the issue with Xi Jinping and other ones were Albanese denies or Albanese defends and the other one was Labor rejects claim it prioritised photo ops in Chinese Navy incident. So something that is a political point scoring comment from a deputy leader of the Liberal Party is put out there as a fact. So any old garbage put out by the coalition, any comment or any statement is then reframed by the media and then thrown at the government. And these are headlines that were coming in from The Guardian and the ABC. The headlines from News Corporation were far worse and they had a field day over at the Daily Telegraph. But Anthony Albanese did speak up about this issue and here's what he had to say about it. This certainly is an event that does do damage and we've made that very clear. This was dangerous, it was unsafe and unprofessional from the Chinese forces and our major concern of course is always for the safety of our Australian Defence Force personnel. We have put our very strong objections to China very clearly, very directly through all of the appropriate channels in all of the forums that are available to us. And here's the Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill. We won't play politics. We won't say things about China to get a headline in Australian newspapers. This is a serious national security issue. And Peter Dutton and Andrew Hastie also had something to say about this. It's it's propaganda and we shouldn't uh, abide it for a second. It's exactly what happens in relation to Japan in relation to the Philippines uh, and in relation to other uh, countries in the region. Uh, the fact is that there is aggressive behaviour taking place and our country should be calling it out. The relationship with China is important, of course it is, uh, but so too is our national sovereignty, uh, our national dignity and pride. Uh, and to have a Prime Minister who speaks of a long conversation with the Chinese President but doesn't raise the issue, it's a remarkable oversight by the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister had a unique opportunity at APEC to raise this directly with the Chinese President Xi Jinping. I think he's in damage control. I think he knows this looks weak. And this is a tried and tested tactic of the Liberal Party and we discussed this a few weeks ago that the Labor Party historically does have a good relationship with China and the Liberal Party doesn't. And that explains their constant racist attacks on China. But this type of belligerence, it's just not in Australia's interest. It might be in the electoral interests of the Liberal Party. Bagging China always plays out well to its base and core group of supporters. But it just seems like this endless war on everything. Create fear, create tension in the electorate, make it seem like there's a massive problem out there with China. And Peter Dutton wants to present himself as the only tough guy out there who you can trust to stand up to China. Which I don't think even his most fervent supporters, but foreign governments look very closely at what is being said with the countries they deal with. I can't believe that Peter Dutton is too obtuse to know this, and I can't believe that he thinks that he'll be able to smooth things over. Certainly politicians will say one thing to a crowd and another thing behind closed doors about people and other governments. But like many people of colour, the Chinese people are very sensitive to any hint of racism. And he may be completely non-racist, but his words don't really suggest that, neither do his actions. 
I don't know how he thinks he's going to maintain good relations, and I don't think he wants to. And, of course, the whole AUKUS thing, there is a sense in that of the white man getting back together. And there's a line of going right back to Federation where particularly the non-Labor sides, but Labor people too, would argue that we need to have a Commonwealth that includes all the white English-speaking nations in the world. This is just more of that as far as I can tell. I'm not being a conspiracy theorist here. I think it's just people get into a, a way of thinking, and even though it's not been relevant since at least... 1972, and you could argue 1948 with the Australian Citizenship Act, 1986 with the Australia Act, 1931 with the Statute of Westminster, 1926 with the Balfour Declaration regarding the British Commonwealth, World War One. Australia shouldn't be part of these archaic political constructs. They should be part of something new and different and big and bold. But the last few years, with only a couple of exceptions that didn't last, have shown that Australia is preferring to be small and hide behind bigger partners who are like them. And Peter Dutton is at the extreme of that. But as you mentioned, David, I think we do need to take into account the AUKUS deal when it comes to these types of situations. And China does see Australia as a valuable trading partner, but it's also in competition with the United States. And geopolitical interests are fluid and do change over time. But because of that relationship that Australia now has with AUKUS, China would be suspicious of an Australian warship close to its field of interest and right on the edge of of the Chinese border. And... And that's not to condone its actions of sending those sonar signals underwater that could have caused serious harm to those Australian divers, but there always has to be a context to these sorts of incidents, and that really hasn't been provided in this instance. And one other issue that hasn't been reported at all in the Western media is a speech that Xi Jinping gave at the recent APEC summit. We, the largest developing country, that is China, and the largest developed country, the United States, we must get along with each other. China is ready to be a partner and friend of the United States. The fundamental principles that we follow in handling China-U.S. relations are mutual respect, peaceful coexistence, and win-win cooperation. China never bets against the United States and never interferes in its internal affairs. China has no intention to challenge the United States or to unseat it. Instead, we will be glad to see a confident, open, ever-growing and prosperous United States. Likewise, the United States should not bet against China or interfere in China's internal affairs. Whatever stage of development it may reach, China will never pursue hegemony or expansion and will never impose its will on others. China does not seek spheres of influence and will not fight a cold war or a hot war with anyone. Now, whether people believe this or not is a different issue, but in the field of diplomacy, National leaders do have to put out comments like this, but this is not like the Cold War anymore where the United States and the Soviet Union were at loggerheads for well over 30 years and there was always hostile rhetoric between the two countries. And 
These don't seem to be the words of a madman, and it certainly doesn't sound like former Soviet President Khrushchev, who took the world to the brink of a nuclear war during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be suspicious of China's motivations and just roll over and just accept everything that they say, but we should be having a more mature, grown-up relationship with China. And I get the feeling that we are moving in that direction, but for the likes of Peter Dutton and all of those conservative interests, they'd prefer to have that relationship where Australia is the scared little child of Asia, always happy to retreat into the corner of the room and just be afraid of everything. It's not terribly mature. It's not terribly forward-thinking. It's not terribly good for Australia. We've had nine years of coalition damage. And I suppose, too, let's be fair, Peter Dutton doesn't want to see the legacy of the previous government, of which he was a part, destroyed. But really, the only way that they can move forward is to ignore it. Until then, we're stuck with an opposition in a time loop that is spinning its wheels faster the further the world moves against it. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music. Or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now support New Politics through Substack and Patreon. The debate over the Stage 3 tax cuts is starting to get another hearing and it's the same debates as before and all of them are very valid of course that tax cuts at this stage will add to the inflation problem that the government is trying to defeat and that the government budget can't afford these tax cuts and it's immoral for the highest income earners to get the bulk of the reward from these Stage 3 tax cuts. and. On the issue of the government budget can't afford these tax cuts, well, governments can afford everything it's or anything that they want. It's just a question of how do they pay for it and whether they have the will to do this. So that's one issue. Is it immoral? Absolutely. There's no question about that. Will it be inflationary? Well, probably, but it depends on how these tax cuts are used by the people who end up receiving them and whether it's used for saving or whether it's used to purchase consumer goods or not. And there's the cost of living issues too that Stage 3 tax cuts hopes to address. But then if people spend more, well, that's going to add to inflation and you just get back to the original problems that you, you were trying to defeat. So there's a whole range of economic problems that are likely to result from the implementation of the Stage 3 tax cuts, which are likely to result in other political problems down the track. But there was a feeling that the coalition government legislated these Stage 3 tax cuts in 2018 for it to appear as a political problem for a future Labor government to deal with. And six years later, it looks like that's going to be the case. It, it was a good bomb to set, probably the only effective thing the last government ever did. And given that interest rates are set to rise again to stop rising wages... I don't know where the rising wages are coming from, but nobody I know has been praising how much extra money they've been getting. It would seem to me that this would be a 
big mistake to bring them in. They could delay them. I know that certain independents like Jackie Lambie have said that they would stop them. Given Jackie Lambie's record, I'm not quite sure that she would. My guess is that she'd be talked out of stopping them at some point and let them go through anyway. The the teal would probably be more in favour of them than not. And I'm speaking generally here. I'm sure some mightn't want them or what have you. But it looks like we're stuck with them, which is, of course, an economic disaster. The amount that we're losing could fund hospitals, schools, infrastructure, law and order, the the usual stuff. And this is for no little gain. The money is not going to float down. Trickle down has been shown to be a lie. The money is just going to stay with the people who it's stayed with. They're not going to spend any extra. They might buy some luxury goods with it, but chances are that they won't. The point is, is it's just keeping more money where the economy needs at least. And there we have a problem. But I think the whole story about the stage three tax cuts is also a story about where the modern Labor Party is at the moment. And the stage three tax cuts have been legislated. And the original name of the bill was Treasury Laws Amendment Tax Relief. So working Australians keep more of their money. Fantastic name. And so it's already a law, which means that to repeal them, there'd have to be an approval from the Senate to do this. And I'd just hate to see what the name of the repealing bill would be if it ever got to that stage. But repealing the legislation would take up so much time and inflict so much political damage on the Labor government. And because 2024 is the final full year before the next election, and I just can't imagine them doing this. And as you mentioned before, senators like Jackie Lambie, those well, she said that she would actually fully support Labor if they do offer to repeal these tax cuts, and I don't think she would. No, she wouldn't. She'd attack the Labor government as much as the Coalition would if it ever got to that point. That's just the nature of politics. And there has been commentary to suggest that this is all not Labor policy, the stage three tax cuts. How dare they implement something that they don't actually believe in? But this is not the Labor Party of the 1950s and the 1960s that we're talking about. While there is some redistributive work that Labor always tries to do when they're in government, the modern Labor Party is as likely to support these types of tax cuts as the coalition is. And David, I was doing some late night reading during the week of the Henry Tax Review from 2010, and that was commissioned by the Labor government at the time. And that recommended almost the same tax scales that are contained within the stage three tax cuts. And the Prime Minister at the time, Kevin Rudd, he was on the verge of introducing those tax cuts, and he definitely wanted to. But then he was rolled. Julia Gillard became the leader and prime minister, and the priorities changed at that time. But I don't think that people should get worked up about the stage three tax cuts being anathema to core Labor Party values. That is exactly the sort of stuff that the modern Labor Party dreams of. And they also implemented the HEC system back in 1989, one of the worst imposts on people acquiring an education. And that's not really much of a Labor value. But if people are looking for fairer and more more equitable economic policies, this is probably not the best place to look. 1977 is a key year in Australian political history. John Howard becomes treasurer of the Liberal Party, meaning that a neoliberal post-Keynesian, if you like, or a neoliberal free marketeer gets hold of the treasury at last. Uh, But on the Labor side, Bill Hayden becomes leader of the Labor Party and his economic position was much closer to the neoliberal side of things. And of course, Hayden leads to Hawke and Keating 
and on and on. It was really only Kevin Rudd who introduced a return to some form of Keynesianism. Most other Labour Party leaders have been very much on the side of neoliberalism, even if they weren't completely neoliberals in the way that, say, John Howard at least claimed to be, or John Hewson or Tony Abbott, Scott Morrison, as much as they understood economics, which was seemingly not much. So, yeah, Labour has really been, with the one possible exception of Kevin Rudd, a neoliberal light you know, I, I will be fair and say they tried to ameliorate some of the more brutal policies that neoliberalism suggests. But for them to bring in tax cuts to higher earners, for them to fund private schools, for them to cut government services as they do from time to time, is deplorable, but it makes sense and is consistent with a lot of close looking at really what they're after. And I think we have to remember that, that the current Labour Party, and has since 1977, with a couple of notable exceptions, and even Gough Whitlam cut tariffs, cut tariffs 25%. So it, it's not a, a simple argument to have that the Albanese government is following this is not unexpected, really. We did hope for better, but it's to be deplored, but it's not surprising. Well, I guess the other thing is that the question has to be, well, what will the Labor government get up to if it doesn't do anything about the stage three tax cuts and just lets them commence on the 1st of July in 2024, which is looking very, very, very likely. And I did give them a kick about not looking at fairer and more equitable economic policies before. But I'd say that to alleviate those concerns about stage three tax cuts and remembering that 41% of the electorate supports repealing the tax cuts, whereas only 22% support the tax cuts. And those polls might be actually correct, but that's what people will say to a pollster. They'd be pretty happy once they get those tax cuts. But I'd say that they'll make an adjustment to the tax-free threshold, maybe up to $25,000, which was recommended in the Henry Tax Review, or they might even go up higher to $30,000. And I'd say that that would alleviate some of those concerns. And they'd have to claw back revenue or cut costs in other areas. And I'm not sure what they would be, but we'll have to wait until the next budget to see what's going on there. And we also have to keep remembering that the Albanese government is a cautious government. And in my opinion, it's far too cautious for its own good. And in politics, it's always best to avoid the problems before they arise. And they can see that there will be massive problems with any attempts to repeal the stage three tax cuts. And the Liberal Party would have an absolute field day. The media would join in the bonanza as well. So I just can't see any of this happening, I'm afraid. Yeah, as much as I hope it doesn't, I'm wondering if they're saving it for an election or if they've got further plans. And by wondering, I think it's hoping against all hope. It looks like we're going to have to wear this and they will feel the bite at the ballot box. This is New Politics, one of the top 10 Australian politics and news commentary audio programs. You can listen to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Amazon Music, and you can find us at newpolitics.com.au, and you can contribute and support New Politics on Substack and Patreon. Oh, well, you can't sleep in my bed no more, you can't ride in my car. 
The recent batch of opinion polls are showing that the Liberal National Coalition are ahead and in the latest Morgan poll it's showing that the LNP is polling at 50.5% in the two-party preferred voting which means that Labor is at 49.5% and we always have to have those usual caveats and cliches that this far out from an election is meaningless and for most of the time that the coalition was in government between 2013 and 2022 they were actually way behind in the polls but managed to win two close elections in 2016 and 2019 and the biggest cliche of all the only poll that matters is the one on election day but still these opinion polls show that the populist outrage that is being generated by Peter Dutton, and that's on the voice to parliament, national security, wokeness, terrorism and China, that's gaining some favourable political results for the coalition and we'll probably keep hearing more of this populist outrage for the next little while. Even if the polls are completely accurate. And let's be fair, the polls have been accurate the last few elections. There's not enough seats. We're looking at, at this rate, still a minority Labor government. I note that there's rumours that there's going to be a spill this week, next week, but there's there's always rumours. Spills are pretty rare. And, of course, who is going to replace him? There's no one. Uh, there's talk of Paul Fletcher, Simon Birmingham, which makes no sense as he's in the Senate. So even if Simon Birmingham or uh, Jane Hume, another senator, was to get it, they'd have to absolutely guarantee them a win in the next election. While the polls are high, maybe the time to remove Dutton so that if they do decide to go with a senatorial candidate, which I, I don't think they would anyway, there's, there's a better chance that they'd win the seat. In the lower house, things are even more dire. Paul Fletcher, one of the worst communications ministers we ever had, seems to be about the least tainted of all the front runners. Hasty doesn't have the brains and is a bit tainted by his war service. Although I'll be fair to him, he did the right thing when it came to reporting war crimes. He went to his superior officers and reported them. I know that there's rumours going around that he was a part of it or what have you, but the public record is that he was one of the few who did the right thing. Who else is there? I mean, Suzanne Lay, forget about it. Although given the party's ability to go from absolutely worse, couldn't get any worse. Oh, hold on, we've found someone worse. Oh, wait, here's Scott Morrison. Oh, Scott Morrison's gone. Here's Peter Dutton. There's plenty of candidates out there. I think that the party are willing to let him lose another election before they start to look at the issues. They're bleeding moderates. I would think that the average Australian voter, when you were to graph it all out, would be fairly close to a liberal moderate in terms of the natural voting tendencies. Whether this is a good thing or not is a debate for another day. But yeah, the party's getting rid of their most seemingly, at least philosophically, electable people and giving power to their least philosophically electable people. The history of the Liberal Party in a few months is going to be one of the more fascinating reads and there'll be someone out there who'll do a really good PhD on it in a few years' time, but we're not through it yet. Well, there might not be that much quality within the Liberal Party leadership at the moment, but generally the key to political success for a government is keeping your opponent down when they are down. And there's no question that the Liberal Party was down and out after the 2022 federal election. And part of the process for the new Labor government would have been to keep them there for as long as possible. Now, 
Being in government is exceptionally hard work. There's no question about that. And it's a bit too much to expect a government to get on with the business of governing, especially in the predicament that the Australian government finds itself in at the moment with all of, you know, trying to clean up all of the mess from the past nine years and then trying to keep the opposition in check. But this is just what they have to do. So for me, Labor has given Peter Dutton and the coalition the tools and the avenues to pick themselves up. And Albanese should have made mincemeat out of Peter Dunn. Bob Hawke and Paul Keating, they absolutely crucified Andrew Peacock and John Howard in the 1980s and and they wouldn't have given Dutton the time of day at all. And that's all well and fair to give the opposition a fair go and adhere to all of those democratic principles. But the Liberal and National parties do not play fair. You don't give a fair go to these people in politics. And if you do, this is the result. If you give them leeway, you have the leader of the opposition controlling the narrative and making it seem that all the decisions are coming from him and the government is following his lead. And I think that's a real problem for this Labor government. And and I think that the Labor government is governing well, but they're just not managing the politics very well. And this is also the end result of being a cautious government. And for the Liberal and National parties, it's the reverse. When they're in government, they play their politics really hard and brutally, but they're not very good at government. And we saw that between 2013 and 2022. And there is a reason why the Liberal and National Coalition have been in office for 70% of the time since Federation. They play hard and maniacal politics. It knocks their opponents out. And Labor governments rarely do this when they're in office. And Hawke and Keating certainly did, but not so much Anthony Albanese. I know part of it is trying to get politics back to a general civil level of debate, but you're not going to get a civil level of debate with uncivilised Neanderthals, which I'm probably being unfair to the Neanderthal there, but unevolved little people with no view of the world outside their tiny circle who have no curiosity who have no intellectual curiosity, who would rather tell you not to find out things than to actually expand their world view of things. It's depressing and sad. And Labor, I think that if you're going to, you've got to treat it like a street fight. You know, the Labor dirt squads have to come back out. There was a bit of fire in Parliament the other day that was good, where the leader of the opposition was told to um, sit down. He tried to move a motion that the government be no longer heard, which was something they used to do all the time when the Labor Party was in opposition and it would work. But Dutton didn't seem to realise that this tactic wouldn't work without the numbers in the House. So he made himself a laughing stock. You lean into that. You you make him look idiotic. You make the press report this stuff because it's so egregious and so ubiquitous that they have to report it. You then keep attacking, keep attacking, keep attacking. The time for civility will come, but it won't come while you've got people who have no interest in civility. And we predicted and quite confidently predicted that Peter Dutton was going to be rolled by the end of this year, but he's still there. And we've got the final two weeks of Parliament coming up and it's the November, December killing season, as they like to call it in Canberra. But this is all unlikely unless the Liberal Party starts thinking, well, hang on, we're at 50.5% of the two-party vote with a seriously unpopular leader. How would we go with a leader who is popular? But as you discussed before, David, there's not much there. So that might still play out over the next fortnight. But the other factor is that Peter Dutton is a blatant populist and a blatant liar as well. And here's a snippet of Dutton where he's still going on about Anthony Albanese's overseas travels. I think the PM's 
on a mission to uh, circumnavigate the globe as many times as he can. Similar to uh, Morrison, though, by the sound and of it. He's travelling about the same amount of uh, miles as, the Mor- as Mor- uh, Scott Morrison did. Oh, well, that's the, that's the line that Labor trots out. But I, I just I think, think that if you look at the uh, figures, the PM's you'll got a lot of hard work to do here at home. I think you'll find it's about the same amount of I just think he's got a lot of hard work to do here. Flights, yeah. Well, well Scott, Scott Morrison didn't go away during the time when he was needed. That was over oh. the period of COVID. Hmm. Well, I just thought of Hawaii for some strange reason. And outright populism and lying as a phenomenon in politics, well, that didn't go away when Donald Trump lost the US election in 2020 or when Scott Morrison and Jair Bolsonaro lost their elections or when Boris Johnson left the British Parliament this year. And over in Argentina, well, they've just elected a new president who seems to be a combination of all of these people, and that's Javier Malay also known as El Loco, which means the crazy man. And Peter Dutton doesn't have the same buffoonery and stunts as some of these other guys, but he's got the same attachment to right-wing politics and dabbling with friends from the far right. And my feeling is, well, what does it say about us that all of these buffoons get elected all across the world? And they've all got similarities. They're ultra-conservative, they're libertarian, they're all based on outright lies, and it's all based around media stunts and the spectacle, which are then amplified by the media. They offer simple solutions to complex problems, and they only make matters worse, and then get booted out after one term or less, so it ends up being a waste of three or four years. And the other consistent factor is that they just never solve anything, and yet they get voted in. And I can see that the Labor government is applying complex solutions to complex problems, and that will take time. But in the modern age of the soundbite and the quick fix, that's really difficult to do, and especially when you've got a loudmouth in Peter Dutton who lies at every opportunity and creates fear and division at every opportunity as well and has the media amplifying every single word that comes out of his mouth. And that's what seems to work in Western democracies these days, where the idiot is king. And I don't know what the solution to all of this is, but I think the Labor government needs to start working on a solution pretty quickly. Otherwise, it might end up being the first one-term government in almost 100 years. People need hope and people need some kind of certainty. And what a simplistic approach which blames the other, which points to things that aren't there, which basically says this is not your fault, we know whose fault it is and we're going to fix it. And look, the normal system of tried, true, trusted complexities isn't working. So Donald Trump can come in and talk about making America great again. One of the most idiotic copyings that the Australian Liberal Party did here was some of their people make Australia great again. Well, you're in government. What are you protesting here? Particularly in countries where their economic position is a bit uncertain, and that includes Australia at the moment. I don't know how many more interest rates rise most mortgagees will be able to take before the Reserve Bank realises, oh, maybe this isn't the only way to control cash. But in places like Argentina, in places like Brazil, Turkey, America, Britain, Boris Johnson. And it's funny too, in Australia, we had Scott Morrison and Tony Abbott, really, and they didn't last. And they didn't last because the facade of we can fix this becomes no, you can't fix it because it is complex issues that requires subtlety and nuance and and competence, none of which you have demonstrated. But when the competent 
nuanced, subtle thinkers are in and don't seem to be able to do anything. Someone coming in and saying, yes, I can do this, Boris Johnson, or it helps if you're charismatic too. Trump is a charismatic figure, not to us, but to his followers. But Johnson was a charismatic figure. Again, not to us, but to his followers. Scott Morrison was an odd one because he wasn't ever that charismatic, not even to his followers. But maybe that was part of the appeal. I think, again, it will take a generation to fix, really, and, and maybe more. Have to fix education. We have to give people decent grounding in government, how voting works, how the Senate works, how the House of Representatives works, what the major parties stand for, what constitutes a party, what is right with the Constitution, what is wrong with the Constitution, what can a referendum achieve, what's the difference between a plebiscite and a referendum, what's a minority government, things like that, things that people shy from, what's the role of the Reserve Bank. When you don't have much of an understanding of this, because you've being told. It seems very daunting, but once you realise it's not that hard and that most of the population of Australia could understand it, we would start to see things for the better. Can the media be trusted? If not, why not? If so, why? What is the good things that the media does? Why do we have laws? What is the social contract? Are there alternatives to the social contract? Are they good or not? You know, this should be started in primary school and not just the excursion down to Canberra that most schools seem to do in year four, five or six and then that's it, you don't need to learn anymore. It needs to be as seen as important as writing and basic uh, mathematics and uh, basic science. And in fact, we can lift all those up too. It probably won't stop the populists coming back from time to time, but it will make it that little bit much harder for them to go. Again, party reform is a big one, but we've built a system that is very good, but isn't quite foolproof. There's quite a lot that needs to be done. Of course, how many people are actually interested in doing it is a whole other thing. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. And if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time. Thank you.